Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm strongly recommending that all Ontarians, not just those at high risk, wear a mask in indoor public settings. I didn't play the uh, Dr. Karen Moore clip just to, just for the sake of playing it. I played it because there's a great deal of talk and a great deal of debate about public health messaging and the wearing of masks about COVID vaccination, about boosters, about the annual flu shot, and uh, a potential masking mandate return. I've heard that talked about in the last few days, a couple of weeks maybe. Dr. Bonnie Henry and Dr. Luc Boileau, the public health chiefs in British Columbia and uh, Quebec, both are opposed to mask mandates returning. But let's talk to my two guests about this entire issue of COVID, vaccinations, boosters, annual flu shots, voluntary but advised masking, potential masking mandate return. Dr. Martha Fulford, infectious diseases specialist in Hamilton, and Dr. Neil Rao, infectious diseases specialist, Halton Region in Ontario, assistant professor at the University of Toronto Medical School. Thank you both for joining us. Here's the question I always ask doctors. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Dr. Rao, you well? well? <laughs> I'm not wearing a mask right now. No, he didn't say anything. I thought, oh. So let's, uh, let's just start with the word mask. And, and where do we go with this? We start, let's do it chronologically looking at people. So let's start with the kids and work up to adults. And, and you please hold court on where masking belongs, where it doesn't, what your considerations are. Dr. Fulford, I'd like to start with you. Uh, sure, thanks. It is very, uh, it's a very polarized topic, uh, obviously, and it's very difficult to have any sort of nuanced conversation about uh, masking because we end up with uh, people being accused of being anti-mask or pro-mask or minimizer or maximizer, and these are all exceptionally unhelpful terms. And so, you know, we want to sort of take a step back and think, well, what is it exactly we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve? And as you say, what exactly are we talking about when we say a mask? Because, of course, each situation uh, is very different. And so a medical-grade mask worn by a healthcare, a trained healthcare person that's put on and taken off appropriately and disposed of appropriately for a controlled encounter is a very different uh, setting and conversation than a young child wearing perhaps a cloth mask, perhaps a paper mask all day long, and what what the aim of each of, of these various settings are. And, and I will speak about the children because when we, we have two and a half years now of various jurisdictions around the world where we've had some places that did mask children, uh, just as many that did not mask children. And so we should be able to look around and say, well, did anything bad happen to the children where they were not masked uh, in terms of COVID? And then we should also look at, did anything bad happen because of the masks? Because no intervention is without a downside. And so we should always talk about risk benefit. Uh, and two and a half years in, I think it's fairly obvious uh, that at best, we have some fairly poor observational studies that would suggest that masking children in the school may decrease the risk of some respite of COVID. Uh, we're not talking about RSV and influenza. Uh, that we have no data that would suggest that children masking prevents those. And so at best, we have data that they may reduce it. Uh, it's pretty minimal. But we now also have increasing data that there are harms. We do know that the ability to, to learn how to read and to 
look at uh, facial expressions are really important uh, for children when they're when they're learning actually word uh, to speak, yeah. word recognition, to read. All of those things are incredibly important. So, so it's more it's, it's more than it's more than COVID. It's more than the mask. It's, it's part of the it's part of the structure of development as a human being, starting as a right. child. And the, and the triggers are very, very different than they are for adults because they don't, kids don't have the, um, they don't have the, um, the experience, life experience that yeah. most of the rest of us have. Dr. Dr. Rob, what about you? And when it comes to the issue again of masks, COVID, the annual flu shot, I'm throwing it all at you at the same time. The RSV infections, where do you want to start? Well, the first thing I would say is that I'm shocked to see us returning to a discussion about masking we're not even talking about a resurgence of COVID. We're talking about a completely different virus, RSV. The other point is that there's not really the burning platform right now that there was even two weeks ago. The rates of RSV are actually dropping. The surge on kids' hospitals, it's still significant, but it's going down. Things are actually getting better. And we can't see that they, we can't say that it got better because we imposed these mask mandates because we're just talking about them. So they can't work retroactively. You know, I mean, if things are going down without this mandate being in place, you can't start saying that only if we did this, it would be less or it would be better. The other weird thing I see is this discussion about the flu vaccine. I'm not at all opposed to the use of the flu vaccine in at risk people, and that includes young children. But the flu wave is already alive and well, at least in southern Ontario. So the later you implement the idea of getting people vaccinated, the lower the benefit. You want to vaccinate before the peak, because the peak of the flu wave is reached because there are more people who are immune than those who are susceptible, and that's why it starts to go down. That's why you get that bell-shaped curve where things start to get better. The same kind of thing has happened with RSV, but we don't have a vaccine for RSV. But the strangest thing I've seen here is people pulling out of the toolbox a mask approach for a virus against which it's not even proven to work. And in fact, this is why when COVID emerged, people weren't reaching for masks during the first wave because they had evidence that with influenza before COVID, uh, the pandemic, that it didn't necessarily work to have people masking. But Dr. Fulford, when you're, one of your great interests is, is kids. Kids' health. You and I've talked about this on the program. Yeah. Um, how do we, in the face of great concern that's expressed publicly by um, other doctors, by hospitals, pediatric organizations, about RSVs and kids in ICUs and keep your children safe? How do we keep the kids as safe as possible, given the over the overall uh, challenge that we're facing? I think one of the messaging is not just from public health, but but it's, uh, I'm sorry to say this, it's also from the media, is catastrophizing everything. And so I, I think we need to take that step back and stop terrifying people. These are viruses that we're dealing with now that are the viruses that we've had seasonally forever. And so I completely agree that we need to focus in on healthcare, on some of the struggles of healthcare and the challenges. But when we focus in on that, it has to be realistic on what's going to make a difference to healthcare. And Talking about a mask mandate is almost like yelling squirrel. Uh, that's not going to fix the surge in our hospitals. And so there are a lot of things we could be do, we could do uh, in terms of stop terrorizing our parents, put things in perspective, and go back to the things so that we all did. So what you do? What do you recommend, Dr. Fulford? Stay home if you're sick. Mm-hmm. Hand washing, particularly for RSV, is very important. Uh, for the children who are vulnerable, and we and the, the kids who are vulnerable today are exactly the same kids who have been vulnerable pre-COVID, we do all the things that we used to do, and parents are very aware of that. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to go back to the messaging we had in the past from public health on, on good old-fashioned um, you know, individual decision-making for, for that person's that family circumstances, that child's circumstances, uh, and give much more individualized advice in these sort of these broad-brush um, measures like mask mandates that clearly have not been effective and that do end up antagonizing people and they do end up um, having people withdraw uh, and losing faith in some of the advice that we give. 
Yeah, there is pushback, certainly, after yeah. this period of time. And uh, I don't want to just harp on Dr. Moore, but it is recent. It's just in the last few days. And if on Tuesday you tell the province to wear masks indoors, and on Thursday you're at a party with 250 people and you're not wearing a mask, you know, they, it's kind of hard to, 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 to miss that. Dr. Rao, would you pick up on what uh, Dr. Fulford just said about, about public health and how we take care of ourselves and how we prevent as much as possible from being affected by these illnesses that are cruising around us. Well, I echo all of the advice that Dr. Fulford gave, but I also see a bit of a Rod Phillips moment here. Remember Rod Phillips who went to St. Parts died in COVID uh, and, and was a member of the Ford government and, and was, you know, uh, rules for me, but not for, you know, rules for, for, for me, but not for me kind of thing. I think that's, that looks bad, but the mistake that was made here was that the message about where this virus RSV is spread wasn't communicated well. So instead of going fishing where the fish are, daycares, uh, parents of young kids, maybe young uh, children, not so much adolescents, if we'd said, look, this is where the problem is, this is where we're going to focus our efforts, whether or not masks really work or not, but this is where we're going to focus our efforts, you wouldn't have the problem of Karen Moore showing up at a Toronto Life cocktail party and people saying, what are you saying to us about this virus and what are you doing? You wouldn't have such a disconnect. So once the message suggests that it's an act of solidarity for everybody to wear a mask anywhere, indoors, all the time, wherever you live in Ontario, whatever you do, that's a confusing message relative to where the problem is right now in the healthcare surge. It's not in adult hospitals. It's in children's hospitals. The other problem we have is that people are not coming out from public health saying the evidence for masking is not really that good when it comes to viruses other than COVID. Even with COVID, we can debate it, but when it comes to the other viruses, it's a paper-thin binder of evidence that's really small. So if people could be honest about it and manage expectations better, which is a phrase I've used a lot on the show, we have to manage expectations better, we would do better. Okay, we have said earlier, RSV is getting better without the, the, the change of policy. Okay, we have three minutes, so... Let me go to the issue of vaccines and uh, boosters. And I, I, I could show you dozens, hundreds of emails that come in with varying opinions on whether or not boosters are effective or whether or not they should be taken. What about the issue, uh, Dr. Fulford, for the majority of people of who've had two shots, maybe three, to continue with boosters? Yes, no. Or I'm saying it shouldn't be that abrupt. Sorry, it shouldn't be that polarizing. I mean, I think with with vaccines, you look at the individual vaccine, you look at what that vaccine does, what it doesn't do, and who might benefit from it. And so, you know, with COVID now, particularly with young people, where the risk from the disease is extremely low, where the vast majority have actually already had COVID and recovered, then the benefit of ongoing boosters is probably not that compelling, whereas if you have a very high-risk, vulnerable person who perhaps doesn't have a good immune system, isn't really able to mount much for natural immunity, it's a very different conversation. So I'm not going to say yes or no. For me, it's an individual risk-benefit conversation for that patient, that patient's immunological situation, their history with COVID, the timing of everything, and, and that it's an individual risk-benefit conversation that has to be had for each person, particularly this far in with so many of us already having had COVID and also having uh, the advantage of natural immunity now. Okay. Let me just uh, let me just ask Dr. Rao one quick question here. So we know that our healthcare system is in really serious trouble. People are not able to get diagnosed. Surgeries aren't being carried out. People are dying because of the situation. There's no escaping that. So given that reality, do I hear you both saying, did I hear you, Dr. Rao, saying that people should start to really think, don't ignore the public health message, but really think for yourself? I mean, I would say that we need clarity of messaging from public health rather than it all being left for people to think for themselves. If it's confusing messaging, that's what ends up happening, and then it becomes uh, uh, the Wild West. But I do think, as Dr. Fulford just said, natural immunity is ignored. If somebody actually had a confirmed case of Omicron or one of its descendants, even in the last year, in my view, they've got protection, but definitely in the last six months. Like, I do think we have pushed the boosters on the wrong people. I, on the other hand, we don't see people talking so much now about the percentage of people who've gotten their last booster. At least we've gotten off that merry-go-round. Yeah. So with regards to flu vaccine, 
again, the flu vaccine doesn't stop transmission. It's the collision is not the collision prevention system. It's the airbag. So for some people, it goes off and protects them from going through the windshield. But those people are very specific groups okay. who have underlying disease. And we end up over-promoting this to everyone, thinking we're going to stop the healthcare system from okay. being overloaded. We're making a false promise. Well, Mr. Trudeau is uh, traveling around the world. And uh, as I'm watching, and I'm watching the money being handed out, I thought, this is some image uh, building that's taking place here. And it may not be entirely unrelated. This schedule is interesting. Unrelated to the uh, final week of testimony at the Emergencies Act invoking inquiry in Ottawa, Mr. Trudeau is going to have to testify, as will several ministers from his cabinet. Kara Zweibel is the director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She's back with us on the program. Kara, thank you very much for, for taking the time. And I just want to read the first sentence from a news release from the CCLA on Friday. This week we've heard from federal officials, but none have been able to back up the claim there was a national emergency as defined by the Emergencies Act. Let me go on a little bit. We have argued from the very beginning there was no national emergency within the meaning of the law. Please explain. So, I mean, the Emergencies Act defines a, a public order emergency in a very specific way, and it, it does so with reference to Section 2 of the Thesis Act, um, which defines threat to the security of Canada. Um, and and it, that includes things like foreign interference and sabotage and espionage. Um, but it, it, you know, it doesn't it, it doesn't encompass sort of a, a widespread protest movement that police are struggling to, you know, address and contain. And, and so, you know, our, our view is that the act was used inappropriately in this case. And, and so far, none of the evidence that we've seen at the commission has really has really done anything to change that. Mm -hmm. There's also this sentence. The government's position seems to be that it was entitled to do so. In other words, invoke the Emergencies Act, that it was entitled to do so. This is profoundly disturbing. And you're absolutely correct. If a government, if it's decided that the government used the or invoked the Emergencies Act because it was entitled, felt entitled, then that just absolutely compromises what essentially is the nuclear option for any government. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, there's, there's, I think what we've been discussing over the course of the last few weeks at the commission is that um, emergency legislation is extraordinary, and particularly that the powers that the federal government has under the public order emergency provisions of the Emergencies Act are extraordinary powers. I mean, you know, people had their assets frozen with no notice, with no due process. Um, there were large areas that were sort of no protest zones. The act, uh, the orders extended across the country, despite the fact that most of the, the, the sort of concerning things that were happening were, were localized to a few areas. So, so you know, we, we do have concerns about about how this was used and about the government's approach. I think um, one of the really good things about the Act is that it does require all of these different accountability mechanisms, including this Commission of Inquiry. Um, and so we really are getting a lot of insight into, into you know, what went into this decision. And we'll get more this week as we hear from members of the Cabinet. Yeah, you also have concern about witnesses uh, testifying, admitting, that the government didn't feel bound by the language of the Emergencies Act. Yeah, there's. It's it's hard to know. I mean, there's a, there, you know, there isn't one witness, obviously, who who completely um, represents the, the government. I guess if there's anyone, it would be the Prime Minister. But um, there's different sort of accounts and approaches from the different witnesses that we've heard in the Federal Public Service about you know, what they were entitled to consider and uh, and how they interpreted the law. And um, it, it, it sort of leaves you with the impression that, um, you know, I don't know, perhaps ultimately that the government decided that regardless of whether what was going on met the legal definition, they felt they had to do something and this is what they did. 
Um, you know, obviously there are all sorts of problems with that, but, you know, from the various piecing together to the different pieces from different witnesses, that, that's sort of the impression, you know, that I have, um, is, is that ultimately they felt they needed to do something. They wanted to do something. This seemed like the tool that they had and, uh, and they used it. And, um, and, you know, I, I do, I do think that, um, to their credit, they used it for a very short period of time. They did revoke it relatively quickly. Um, but, you know, during those few days that the orders were in place, there were, the federal government had extraordinary power and they, um, and they delegated to law enforcement and to financial institutions extraordinary power. Yeah. Um, do you have any sense that any testimony by the prime minister or by members of his cabinet might change your view? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't yet have a good sense of what um, what we can expect those witnesses to say. I think, um, you know, I can't imagine that there's a lot of information that the government had that we haven't already heard about. Um, I would be surprised if we all of a sudden heard that there was some new piece of intelligence or, um, you know, information that the government had that uh, that we've yet to, to hear about that sort of prompted them to do this. And, and I mean, they did, you know, part of the act is that they have to put a, a justification before Parliament for its consideration. And so we, we know what that looks like. And, um, you know, a big chunk of what that looks like has to do with economic concerns, economic harm. Mm -hmm. And um, again, you know, in our view, that those things are not things that are covered by the existing statute. November 20th is Trans Remembrance Day and Langley, British Columbia lawyer Scott Taylor is uh, representing a trans client in family court seeking co-custody of her two children. Now, it's interesting what's uh, what's happened so far, and I have uh, understanding of what's happened, but let's find out on the air. Um, Scott Taylor, Taylor Law Group in Langley, British Columbia. Good to talk to you again, Scotty. How are you? Well, well, you know what? It's always nice to chat. Roy, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me back. Nice to be back. Yeah. Hi, Riley. Thanks uh, for coming on. Good to talk to you. Uh, you too. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, Scott, why don't you give us a bit of an idea? It's sure. Trans Remembrance Day today. What was the well, fundamental issue that the court was looking at? Well, uh, I, I should say that um, Riley has been a longtime client of mine, and she has faced a number of challenges both in her personal life, which she can uh, tell you about, and her legal life is when I got involved. And that legal life involved fighting over a number of years to reconnect with her two children, two preteens, and to, to, to be granted additional parenting time. Each and every instance required Riley and myself to return to court to get that time. And uh, those challenges, I'm, I'm very pleased to say, have recently been overcome and uh, very pleased at the result. And uh, uh, Riley has accomplished what is so important for trans parents everywhere, which is uh, shared parenting with her children. Yeah, there's um, so much misunderstanding and uh, so much uh, uh, fiction about trans people, and it's. I think I think I think our society is becoming more aware now, which is a positive development. But Riley, if I if I can just ask you before we talk about the case and we talk about, and I'm so sorry you had to fight to see your kids, but uh, Trans Remembrance Day, what does it mean to you? Um. Well, actually, this is, um, I think uh, this is part of uh, this Trans Remembrance Day, but it's, uh, it's also Trans Awareness Week. So um, I think, I think to me, um, it's, it's, it's Trans Remembrance Day is supposed to be, um, it, it basically is just supposed to focus on, uh, in a big way, um, those that, that we've that we've lost to um, to to difficulties and, and things like hate crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you just heard, but there was um, there was just recently an incident down in Colorado um, where 
uh, uh, nightclub, a queer nightclub was attacked and a bunch yes. of people were killed. Five people killed, 18 were wounded. That's right. So it just so happens to be right before Trans Remembrance Day. Yeah. Um, coincidentally. And um, so, I mean, today is just to remember those that didn't have it as good or as easy or have somehow been hurt or lost lost their lives um, due to um, hate, basically. Yeah, and I, I led into this uh, interview, our conversation, with that question for a specific reason. Um, and it's anytime um, I talked to Scott about this before on different cases where a parent seeks to either get access to their children or increase access or in other circumstances try to get gain custody. What is really troubling is when a parent feels it's necessary to use the court to try to gain uh, access to their children, Riley. In your case... It wasn't the, I don't know if there's such a thing as a typical case, but in your case, the the trans aspect of your life was part of it, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Um, not, I mean, it was, it was always a part of everything, um, but it, it wasn't actually, it wasn't commonly known and it wasn't brought to light um, until um, this year, actually. So, you know, I've been working with Scott for a few years and he didn't know. And a lot of people didn't know that even mid transition, um, or I shouldn't say mid transition because transitioning can take anywhere from, you know, several years to the rest of your life, depending on how you look at it. But, um, you know, I'm two, almost two years in and, um, nobody really was of the wiser because I hadn't, I hadn't really given an announcement. Um, I hadn't told. Uh, I hadn't told Scott. I hadn't told a lot of people. Um, and then it came time to really buckle down on everything we've been working on on this case. And I just, I'd always told myself that at some point I wanted to be able to um, use, not use, but I wanted to be able to come out and basically. Um, be transparent about um, such a big thing in my life, um, even if it if it had to happen in court, which which it actually ended up happening. Now I, I did tell Scott and the people involved prior to you know much prior to, so everybody was was prepared. Um, but we decided to um, we decided to divulge that information as part of our statement. Um, during the big trial at the end of this case, which um, which I was very happy about. Scott, why don't you jump in? Well, <laughs> thanks, Rod. Um, well, I think what this decision really comes down to, and it always comes down in any family law case in Canada, is that the court, the judge, is only looking at what the best interests of the children are. And there's a number of factors that, that a judge uses to determine, you know, to make a decision. Like, what is in the best interest of this child or these children? And there are a number of things. Relationship with the kids, the, the relationship with the parents, the wishes of the children, a whole variety of factors. But what this case clearly demonstrates, and other cases across Canada, clearly show that gender is, is not the issue, good parenting and good parents, and I'm including Riley as a good parent, knows no gender. And, and I think that is really the essence of what this is all about and the message I think that, that Riley and I would like to send to other trans parents, wherever they may be. It, it, is, it is not a disadvantage in decisions involving children and what a loving parent can do and what a loving parent, who a loving parent can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that, that realization it doesn't come easy for, for many, but, but it's a fact. Mm-hmm. And so loving and caring for your children is not defined by your gender. And that, uh, that I think in this particular case, I, and I think the judge in this particular case realized that in hearing about Riley and what Riley had done and was prepared to do for her children. 
and and I think uh, Riley, you would agree that the judge was in. Uh, she paid attention to that in particular, yeah, in all of the other things that were said. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what, what you just said to me, anyway. It's about a parent, a loving parent, and relationship with the parent and the children. That's as clear to me as these big lights that are on, on above my head. <laughs> it shouldn't. It shouldn't be an issue. I mean, they're your kids. You love them. They love you. You want to see them. I'm, and the judge obviously concurred. Yes, oh, clearly. Oh yeah, we know. No, the judge. The judge clearly in in. Again, in her decision, um, made it very clear that the share and and Riley uh, was uh, was granted shared parenting, which is essentially equivalent parenting to whatever parenting time the mother had. That's the time, the parenting time now that that Riley has with her children. Mm-hmm. So, so that is, and 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 I think uh, Riley had spoken had previously spoken on occasion with. With her children as well. So, so Riley Scott brought up uh, communicating with your kids. How, how do you explain to your children, or did you even have to? Because you're you're the parent. Um. Well, my, I guess there's a, I guess some explanation is necessary, right? Clearly. Yeah. Um. Yes. I mean. Um. No, I wasn't. It wasn't very obvious that I was struggling with my gender um, most of my life. Uh, my kids, being both being around ten years old right now, um, you know, they knew me despite the challenges um, <clears throat> with with custody and such. You know, in the limited time that I had with them over the years, you know, I was still able to see them. You know, enough that they knew who I was. Right, there was no. There was no issue with uh, them being estranged or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but until I explained it to them, they would have, they would have had no idea. Um, so my two children were the first ones that I actually came out to out of everybody. And the reason is, is because there's nobody, they're the closest people in my life. Mm-hmm. And, them knowing matters more than anybody else knowing. And I didn't want to hide it from them. And I definitely didn't want them to find out after a whole bunch of other people found out. So I made the decision. It was very easy for me to tell them. And it isn't something that they didn't know about. Um, because nowadays, um, you know, LBGTQ support and inclusion as part of the school curriculum in many ways. So it's not like they didn't know about um, LBGTQ people, um, but uh, they had no idea that one of their parents was. So um, it only led to an enrichening of our relationship. Um, yeah, I, I, I just have a feeling that uh, your kids, the fact that you told them first, as they grow up and they are more with you and you're one of her, their two parents, they will appreciate, the older they get, the more mature they get, they will appreciate the fact that you told them and you told them first. I think, I think that so, will be yeah. really important to them. Oh, I I agree. I agree, Roy. And, and you know, Roy, a court is really where you actually hear someone tell yeah, yeah. tell the court who, who they really are. Yeah. So I, sure. I have nothing but the uh, utmost respect for Riley's courage and determination that so, he's shown throughout this. So, so let me ask you this, Scott. Is it different when you go to court and the laws are written supposedly cut and dried. Here's the law, <laughs> right? And then they have, that's why we have appeals courts when they re-examine. I know the process. I understand it. But when you go to court and you represent Riley or you re- represent another trans uh, parent in a situation, in a family uh, dispute, is there a different atmosphere in the court? It is, is it different than if you had, if you didn't have a trans person 
well, with you? You know, it's an interesting question, right now. I, I would say the answer. The answer is yes. I, I wanted in Riley's situation to make it clear from the start about the challenges that Riley was facing, and those included challenges in her personal life and her legal life. I mean, that is because it shows the courage, the determination, and it is just such a powerful message, I believe, the court needs to hear. I mean, judges don't hear that honesty from parents sometimes in court. And I wanted it to be one of the one of the most important things that this court was aware of was how much effort, determination, and commitment that Riley was prepared to make for the sake of her relationship with her children. What I mean, did the judge that, say? What did the judge say in there? Well, the judge. <laughs> well, now the judge at, at the end of uh, at the end of the um, uh, of the trial, the judge simply she began by launching into basically giving us the, the parenting time we were we were looking for. In other words, the judge didn't specifically make any reference to gender at all in, in her reasons. She just simply launched into that decision that basically gave Riley the parenting time that, that we were looking uh, for her to, 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 um, to be granted. So, but, uh, but I think, uh, you know, under the, the surface or between the lines, um, Roy, I would, I would say that uh, she was uh, mightily impressed with, um, with Riley and what Riley had to say. And, and again, it isn't, I mean, because you're a transparent doesn't automatically give you more parenting time. There are far more factors that are involved in that consideration. But I think that that uh, the courage that Riley uh, demonstrated on the stand was a powerful, powerful factor in in the grant in the judge granting uh, her the parenting time with the children, okay. and that the children would benefit. It was in the best interest of the children yeah. that Riley played a part in their life as much of a of an influence as their mother. COP27 just ended in in Egypt and and it ended with sort of last minute agreements being made. I, I can never figure this out because you have these nations at the United Nations and they're constantly in communication with each other. Can't you work it all out beforehand? Isn't this supposed to be a formality? Part of the conference should be a formality. You know, this is what we've agreed to, so we'll tell the rest of the world. Instead of, well, we want this and you want that and we're going to get that. No, you're not. It just confuses the issue, in my view. So let's talk about COP27 and the climate conference. Our guest was there, as I've told you before, making the case for nuclear energy as a key component to address climate change concerns. Dr. Chris Kiefer is a staff emergency physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Toronto. He is president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy and director of Doctors for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, good to have you with us. What's your overall assessment of what, how it went? Well, Roy, I, I share some of your frustrations uh, just trying to interpret um, all of you know what Greta Thunberg last year called the blah, blah, blah. Um, there are some new um, commitments that came out of, of this conference, but as we've seen in the past, many pledges have fallen flat. Um, the biggest one was uh, a commitment towards developing a loss and damage fund, and basically that's sort of a insurance policy um, of developed countries um, creating a financing mechanism to help um, undeveloped countries cope with extreme weather events. You know, it is complicated. There are hundreds and hundreds of countries coming together, um, but I could I could probably simplify it down to you know a good reason why things seem so irreconcilable. We have the developed world, um, which is responsible for much of the world's emissions, um, is the most resilient um, to to climate harms. We have to remember that deaths from um, extreme weather events, et cetera, have dropped one hundredfold in the last hundred years. And, you know, the paradox is, is that's due to our use of fossil fuels to build sturdy infrastructure, to build good roads, to have strong buildings, um, to have flood protection mechanisms. This all requires things like steel, concrete, agricultural advances, fertilizer, et cetera. And there's still a lot of countries that don't have that. And the tension here is that those countries need help with adaptation, um, need help developing resilience. Um, that's probably going to involve them using quite a bit of fossil fuels. Well, even even today, there was a report by the uh, 
Montreal Economic Institute, and we talked to them about it last weekend or the weekend before. And even today, after more than $5 trillion has been spent on renewables or developing renewables, 84% of the world's energy is from fossil fuels. So it's not going away anytime soon, but I just want to make this point before I forget. Whether you're someone who has, or this is the people I run into, okay? Mm-hmm. Whether they're people who are very enthusiastically supportive of doing whatever it takes to address climate change, and they're, you know, they're, they're never going to say no. And I have friends who are like that. And then I have friends on the other side who say, yeah, yeah, but not if it's going to cost me any money. And, and we've seen polling that shows that, that a significant percentage of the national population. Yeah, I think climate change should be addressed. And then the next question is, so how much would you be willing to give up or spend? Would you be willing to pay more tax? No. So, the, but, so I have these two bookends that we'll never meet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when I ask them about nuclear energy, both sides, people on both sides say, oh, yeah. So there is this understanding, and you've made the case so persuasively and passionately for some time with us. There is this understanding that nuclear energy has a really significant part to play. So how does the nuclear energy issue and the debate fit into the fit into COP27? Well, you know, it was inspiring because there were probably about 60 people there um, between three different booths um, who were advocating for nuclear energy. And this wasn't the cloud crowd you'd expect. This wasn't kind of old white men. It was actually a ton of young voices, predominantly from Africa, from Sudan, from South Africa, from Sierra Leone, uh, from Egypt, which itself is uh, building what will be the largest power plant of Africa for large nuclear reactors. Um, on the other hand, at the country booths, um, you know, countries like France, which accidentally decarbonized their electricity, building 54 nuclear reactors in 20 years in the 70s, um, not a mention of nuclear energy. And I mean, these folks should be proud. In a similar sense, you know, at the Canadian Pavilion, um, we achieved North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction, which was the coal phase out here in Ontario. And that was powered 90% by nuclear energy. Um, but you wouldn't see a mention of that anywhere. Um, there's uh, wind turbines and solar panel uh, adverts absolutely everywhere, plastered across the whole place. But as you say, we've spent an enormous amount of resources, and we've only dropped um, our fossil fuel use as about 1% of global primary energy. I think the big thing, Roy, is um, this is going to sound controversial, but we have to respect fossil fuels. Um, again, we live in a fossil fueled civilization. Everything that pins this up, the four pillars, things like steel, cement, plastics, fertilizer, you know, it's not just a matter of what's going to cost more. If we follow the dictates of Extinction Rebellion and didn't pull another drop of oil or natural gas out of the ground, four billion people would die in about 10 years. And that's because half the world's population wouldn't survive without synthetic fertilizers, without natural gas. So we need to respect how powerful these tools are and ensure that we're doing that and and that we understand that we need to replace those services with something that's potentially even better. And nuclear does offer us that. Unfortunately, wind and solar really don't. So, yeah, fossil fuels are so integral to our daily lives. You can't just pull it out because, you, as you said, you lose so much and billions of people first would suffer and then would die. Now, uh, let me ask you this. I want to make sure that I've got this correct. Canada didn't want language at COP27 in the final statement. I may have this wrong. In which this country supports the phase-out of all oil and gas. That kind of made give me a headache. Stephen Gilbo was worried most decisions taken by Ottawa on its version of addressing climate change would be challenged in court, and he specifically pointed to provinces ready to go to court. And I guess he's thinking of Scott Moe and Danielle Smith, who both have been mm-hmm. guests on my program, stating their governments will in fact challenge the Trudeau government on decisions Saskatchewan and Alberta assess as being contrary to the best interests of their provinces. And they will assert their provincial rights over natural resources as defined in the Constitution. So I, I, if I have that correctly, that tells me that the federal government did not properly think through its approach and its policies and forgot that the provinces have constitutional uh, primacy over over natural resources. Well, yeah, I, th- I think you're probably right there. And it yeah, be so the first time. Each time, each time I come to the end of one of these disjointed statements, I have the same thought. 
nuclear. Yeah. No, I, I share that frustration. Again, I mean, there are some alternatives to fossil fuels for these vital things like fertilizer. But the the irony here is that they're going to require a lot more energy and they're going to require something called process heat. And that's something that nuclear can do. It can provide that reliable round the clock energy that we need to run things like um, electrolyzers that can make um, green hydrogen um, that we can use to avoid using methane, for instance, in the production of fertilizer. But we need a lot of energy. And it's really daunting, Roy. I mean, it's good to be aspirational and having goals like net zero by X date. But, you know, when you step away from this and look at it realistically, net zero is a centuries project, if it's even achievable, because so much of the UN modeling relies on fantasy, relies on carbon capture and storage that I don't think will ever reach the kind of scale that would be necessary. It relies on something called bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, which is basically burning in lots and lots of wood and crops and trying to capture all that carbon and bury it underground. This is fantasy stuff. And it's used often as a way to say, well, nuclear energy is not fast enough. There's no point doing it. You know, if we don't hit our targets in six years or 12 years um, and, you know, again, I, I I'm an aspirational kind of guy. Um, I'm ambitious. I think we should be ambitious. But there's there was just so much energy illiteracy at COP, particularly amongst the decision makers. And I think that really dooms its long term project, this U.N. Conference of the Parties project to failure. Um, if people haven't done the basics and, and learned a little bit about energy and what what pins up our civilization. Yeah. So, Dr. Kiefer, while you were there, you had a, an encounter with the, uh, was it the German Minister of Foreign Aid? Yeah, that's right. Uh, her name's Svenja Schultz. Um, she was actually the Minister of, uh, of Environment um, and Nuclear Safety because they lump those two things together in Germany. Of course they do. Um, where they so love to, uh, to shut down nuclear plants. And, you know, for context, um, Germany is a country that has probably gone the deepest in on, on energy transition. They've spent half a trillion euros, which used to be a little more valuable a few months ago, um, mostly on wind and solar. Um, and actually, right now, there's a really good app called Electricity Map, and it tells you what the percentages of the grid are right now. They're 55% coal and gas at the moment. Um, so they haven't achieved very much. At the last COP, I met this uh, this minister and um, almost got an interview with her, but her attache kind of got in between us. Um, she was at an event um, trying to uh, share and, I guess, impose the German energy transition model on South Africa, a much poorer country, a much less developed country, uh, a much uh, more vulnerable country to climate change. Um, so this year, um, she was at a meeting, a ministerial meeting between the EU and Africa, um, and I got a tip off that she was there and uh, managed to catch her for a quick interview. And you know what I asked her about was the phenomenon of, we know that they hooked themselves up to Russian gas and they're in a crisis there, um, but they've also shut down their nuclear fleet almost entirely. They used to be 25% nuclear. And as a result, um, they are out there on the international market um, trying to scramble and buy up every bit of coal and natural gas they can to keep the lights on in Germany. And the effect that's having on African countries is actually they're, they're outbidding them. And so the cost of the vital fuels that Africa needs to keep the lights on um, is out of reach. So there was a real question of, you know, what one might call environmental justice going on. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't get a very substantive uh, answer to the question out of her, um, but if it was, it was, you know, I felt like a good opportunity to speak some truth to power and, and make a politician uncomfortable who, you know, has a lot on her hands. Well, yeah, and, and good for you because uh, here's Germany saying one thing and then returning to coal-fired plants when they had the nuclear. Well, they had not only the capacity; they had the plants. They were there. The infrastructure was there. It has the, the best run nuclear plants in the whole world. Um, they, they achieve these capacity factors, meaning they produce, you know, 95% of the total possible energy they could. These things are run like absolute clockwork. It's a real shame. Germany has been at the forefront of closing down nuclear plants um, unnecessarily. But, you know, there was a really interesting study that came out um, by the Breakthrough Institute, which is a think tank in the U.S. And they looked at the emissions that have resulted uh, from nuclear closures in the globe. North, Because every time a nuclear plant gets closed, it's not replaced with wind and solar. It's replaced with coal and gas because that's what you can replace a baseload source that's always on with. And so as a result, the emissions that have increased from those nuclear closures is equal to the total emissions of 37 African countries. You know, there's still... Uh, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. 
there's still a billion people living on the same amount of electricity that, you know, our fridges here consume in North America. There's a real issue of energy poverty. And that was, you know, really, I think what motivated a lot of the African members of the nuclear for climate team that were there um, sparking conversations um, and really bringing that role of nuclear to the forefront. Let me read you an email from a listener. This comes from Colin. Hello, I'm listening to the show. Nuclear power is the topic. My question is, What's the policy for nuclear waste from these potential plants? What is the half-life of the waste? And how do we plan on storing disposal of it? Yeah, I mean, the waste question comes up a lot, and it's, it is fascinating to me. Um, so, I mean, a, a couple quick things here. Nuclear waste fresh out of the reactor, incredibly dangerous. We have to shield it very carefully. But in our society, we make dangerous things safe. You know, we fly in airplanes. A lot of us flew to COP, 30,000 feet going pretty close to the speed of sound, nowhere close to land, you know, 10,000 mission critical moving parts in an airplane. And we make global aviation quite safe. There's 4.5 billion passenger flights every year and only about 200 deaths a year. Well, the handling of nuclear waste in the 70 year history, there's never been a death associated despite the danger of this fuel coming fresh of the reactor. But there's good news. Nuclear waste undergoes exponential radioactive decay. In 20 years, 99.9% of the radioactivity is gone, which means that, you know, that really hot fuel that's fresh out by about 200 years, you could stand about a meter away from it unshielded and get the dose of a CT scan or two. And in 600 years, you can hold the stuff in your hand. So I think a lot of people don't understand that. You know, they've heard this is forever waste, that the you know half-lives go out millions of years. I mean, we have a radioisotope naturally occurring in our body called potassium-40. It's the predominant um, cation, uh, you know, the predominant positively charged um, atom inside of our cells. And it has a 2.3 billion year half-life. There's a real, I think, misunderstanding here that, you know, this perception that the world is not radioactive. We're constantly bathed in radioactivity. And the amount of nuclear waste that's created is very small um, in the entire 70-year history of its storage. There's a single incident in terms of a death or fatality associated. We know how to manage this stuff. And dangerous waste are not something that's unique in our modern society. But we put this, this microscope on nuclear waste, and it's this diversion from the enormous amount of CO2 and air pollution waste that's going into the air every single year. Okay, and I have a, is the best tool we have to replace that kind of waste, which I have is really a, I have what have the about a minute left. So we, uh, governments come and go. And governments tend to initiate processes and plans that they – map out 20, 30, 40 years down the road. They'll be long gone by then. So given that, the governments come and go with different philosophies, different approaches, different things they favor. What is the realistic future immediately for the development of nuclear energy in this country? You know, we're, I think, on the verge of a really exciting moment um, because, you know, we're seeing provincial support. Um, we had the life extension and likely refurbishment of Pickering, which keeps, you know, the the that power station, which produces as much electricity as Niagara Falls online. But we also saw the federal government move in with a one billion dollar um, financing package for the West's first SMR. Canada is uniquely equipped um, to take part in this nuclear renaissance because we've kept our skills up. We're refurbishing our can react. Um, so I'm, I'm really bullish and, and very excited about Canada's contribution here. The IPCC says we need to increase nuclear energy by 100 to 500 percent. Canada can do its part. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 